BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours. Today, the question of a common chemical found in our drinking water that is known to feminize male animals, masculinize female animals, and some researchers insist is having a dire effect on people. I'm pretty sure that you're going to find the subject of today's podcast one of the most interesting you've heard in a long time. By way of background, I've put a lot of thought into and done a bit of research into the trend of people becoming, let's say, gender confused. I started thinking about it years ago when I did my first news report at CBS News about a drug called Risperdal, commonly given at the time to autistic children off-label. It was really designed for seriously bipolar children. But side effects include something called gynecomastia, boys growing girls' breasts and young girls developing unnaturally even prior to puberty. That side effect, gynecomastia, was denied by the drug maker, but ultimately, after a lot of lawsuits, added to the label as a warning, and there have been many lawsuits. These poor boys impacted. Some of them had to have double mastectomies. But something that stuck in my mind when I did the very first story was a mom I spoke to, the mother of a boy, who claimed that he had been completely normal in terms of his sexuality, But when he was prescribed Risperdal, he grew breasts and told her suddenly that he felt like a girl. And most importantly, she says, when he went off the medicine because the side effect was recognized, his feelings didn't go back to normal. She says her understanding was, in her terms, that it turned him gay. Risperdal isn't the only medicine with gynecomastia as a potential side effect, something that doesn't just affect breast growth, but could affect many things in the body. And I came to wonder if a medicine can do this, and if multiple medicines can have this side effect, what other environmental exposures may do this to people? There are so many pharmaceuticals and chemicals in our drinking water and in and on our food, not filtered out, stuff that runs off from crops, stuff that comes out of people in, when they excrete it after they drink and eat, and it remains in the water, not filtered out such as, say, researchers' antidepressants, birth control pills, antibiotics, you name it. If we're taking it, a lot of this is getting into our drinking water, ultimately. Well, fast forward to a man named Tyrone Hayes. 25 years ago, as a professor at Berkeley, he learned a very uncomfortable truth about a commonly used chemical that runs off primarily corn crops and is widely found in our drinking water. His story is about what happened to him when he told what his research found, and what he thinks are the implications of his research today on what we're learning about the feelings of so many children who say they wish they were the opposite sex, or they say their feelings are the feelings that they think are feelings felt by the opposite sex. In any event, here's Tyrone Hayes, a professor in the Department of Integrated Biology at Berkeley, also 
Associate Dean for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging in the College of Letters and Sciences. Before we get into specific questions, is it possible to describe in a few sentences a summary of the body of research that you do? So I am a developmental endocrinologist. That's mean, that means I'm interested in the role of hormones in regulating development. In particular, I work on amphibians, and my interests are in control of development and metamorphosis. I'm also interested in developmental endocrinology. So in that transition from tadpole to frog, there's also a transition between neutral or undifferentiated sex, where the animal goes down a pathway to develop testes or to develop ovaries. Was some of your early research done for a private company? Uh, yes. When I was an assistant professor, I was contracted by what was then the Vardas to study atrazine, an herbicide, and to figure out if that herbicide somehow interfered with hormonal regulation of development. And what did you learn early on? Early on, we showed that atrazine, both uh, what I deem demasculinized animals, as well as feminized animals. So genetic males, which should develop testes and um, a certain type of larynx or voice box for attracting females, that aspect was inhibited. And those genetic males oftentimes developed ovaries and actually transformed into females. Was there resistance to the find making the findings that you had public at the time? Yes. So the company and the consulting firm that I actually was under contract for was not interested in me publishing the work. And in fact, it was covered in my contract that I needed permission from the company to publish the work. Did you feel like what you had found was important for the public body of knowledge? I was trained as a scientist that you share your work and you share your work both to make it available to other scientists, but also <clears throat> in sharing your work, that's how you got critiqued or reviewed. You share your work with other scientists that would give you ideas that would help you interpret the data. And so it was against my training to not openly share and present data or to, you know, sort of hide and sequester data so that it was not available. Um, that's just not how I was trained as a scientist. So what did you decide to do? Um, at some point, I became uncomfortable with some of the things that the company asked me to do. So I became uncomfortable with some of the interpretation and some of the, uh, quite honest, manipulations of the data that they were requesting. And so I decided to repeat the science because they owned those data. I decided to repeat the work without their funding so that I had freedom to publish and to discuss those data with scientists outside of my lab and outside of my university. Were you met with any resistance on publishing your findings? I assume you found similar things. Mm -hmm. And then did you try to publish that and what happened? Yeah, so we, we conducted several studies after the original study that was funded by Novartis. We found similar things in the studies that we repeated, but also in other species. And there was no trouble publishing in the sense that it was peer reviewed. It was critically reviewed um, by the top journals in, in science not just in the field. Um, the only trouble was that the company, upon publication, the company tried very hard to get the work retracted or to publish counter work or actually contact the university to try to get them to stop me from publishing. Was Novartis making the product or making products with that in it, Atrazine? At the time, it was the number one selling product for Novartis. It was their number one 
selling agrochemical. What's and they just sell the chemical and then other people use it in different products. Like what um, sort what sorts of things is it used in? It's, it's so it's an herbicide, the active compound atrazine, and it's used in a number of different formulations. And they're sold directly by Novartis and then Syngenta. They became the company Syngenta. And I think there are a few other companies that use atrazine, but it was really a, a Novartis product. People may have no idea what happens behind the scenes with large companies, particularly pharmaceutical companies or chemical companies, as they try very hard to, they would say, get their side of the story out, and others would say, manipulate or hide some of the problems with their products. What are some of the things that happened to you as you conducted this research and published it? Oh, well, they published, well, (laughs) they did a lot of things to me. Um, One, there was a pressure to um, reevaluate data to inappropriately manipulate data to make it appear not as bad as it was. They hired other scientists to conduct experiments in ways that weren't informative. Um, well, and even some of the studies that they conducted found the same results, but they wrote something different. Um, they tried to get my work retracted from journals. They actually launched personal attacks on me and they had plans was revealed uh, through documents obtained in a, in a court, in a, legal hearing. They had plans to harass and pursue my students and my family. Um, so a number of things that aren't typical of what one scientist would do to make its point. What is it today? Where does the body of knowledge stand after all of these years of work? And what is the status of the chemical itself in terms of what the EPA says about it? So right now there's an overwhelming amount of data to support that atrazine is an endocrine disruptor across all vertebrate animals, not just in frogs. I published one paper with 22 co-authors from 12 different countries showing that atrazine was a reproductive toxin in fish, amphibians, reptiles, birds, and rodents. Uh, there are other studies that have examined human cell lines. There are correlational studies that have examined um, atrazine associated with a number of different adverse outcomes in humans, including breast breast cancer, prostate cancer, low sperm count, um, and a variety of different birth defects. The EPA recently in 2020, I believe, 20, yeah, 2020, the EPA released its final assessment and concluded that atrazine is likely to affect 54% of all species and 42% of all critical habitats. And that same year, the EPA re-registered atrazine for use. Said it's okay to use. Said it's okay to use despite these preponderance of science showing that it has adverse effects on animals. To what do you attribute that? Uh, It makes somebody a lot of money. And there's a big lobby and industry has a big influence over decisions like the ones that the EPA have to make. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.
As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. So typically this chemical gets in the water of frogs. How? So atrazine is a, a water contaminant. So it runs off after it's applied to crops. It runs off. It ends up in the groundwater, ends up in the surface water. It can travel into the atmosphere on dust and end up in the rainwater. Um, so the primary exposure is through water. If you're an aquatic animal, it's through living in that water. And for other animals, it's through drinking the water. Is it possible we're getting exposed to this chemical at a level that's not safe for us if we're drinking that water? The uh, level of atrazine that's allowed in drinking water is three parts per billion. That's 30 times higher than we know to be effective in other animals. In addition, if you're a factory worker or a farm worker, atrazine is absorbed across the skin um, and you also breathe it in. And levels in factory workers and farm workers can be several thousand times higher than what we know to be effective in animal experiments. And when you say effective, it sounds almost like a good thing. I know that's a scientific phrase, but you're saying known to impact. Correct. Not in a good way that we would consider a good way. Correct. So, for example, atrazine will chemically castrate and feminize frogs at 0.1 parts per billion. That's about one one thousandth of a grain of salt and two liters of water. It has similar effects on fish at those same levels. Um, the drinking water standard is 30 times higher than that. Uh, which And that doesn't mean, for example, that uh, your drinking water it should be at three parts per billion always. That means on average. Some days it may be 10 times higher than that. But the EPA allows it to be, on average, three parts per billion. And that's too much. And that's 30 times higher. That would act as an endocrine disruptor for frogs and fish. I know that you're looking at frogs primarily. But if you were looking at, or for scientists who are looking at, if there are any the impact on people, where would you begin if you were wanting to know what impact this could be having on the human population? So the human studies I know of, uh, Shauna Swan's done studies where she's just looked across individuals in, in various cities, and she's shown that in Columbia, Missouri, men with 0.1 parts per billion atrazine in their urine, um, that, that that level of atrazine is associated with low sperm count and infertility. The other studies have looked in their factory at San Gabriel, Louisiana, for example, and shown an 8.4-fold higher incidence of prostate cancer for men who work in their factory bagging atrazine. There's another study in Kentucky that looked at um, well water contamination with atrazine and showed a very strong correlation between women who drink that well water and the likelihood of getting breast cancer. Other studies have looked across populations where atrazine contamination occurs and correlated atrazine with uh, certain types of birth defects, including genital malformation in males that we know is consistent with the mechanism of atrazine's action. Have you wondered if this is a hormone disruptor, if this could be playing any role in what we're seeing happening in our youth today when you, there's a lot of boys who say they feel like girls and girls who say they feel like boys? That's a tricky question. So 
So let me be very clear. Um, The sex and gender identity and um, sexual orientation and preference are in part controlled by hormonal influences early in development in the womb. Um, and we know this, for example, that is evidence in, in, in laboratory rodents that shows that hormonal exposure to androgens and estrogens can very early on shape the brain in such a way that the that it determines whether or not you'll show, quote, male behavior or a female typical behavior later in life. There's no doubt in my mind that there are similar influences in humans. Your relative exposure to androgens and estrogens and other steroids may shape the brain that may later determine those things. There are also genetic and social and other environmental influences as, as well. That all being said, there's very likely that chemicals like atrazine that can influence your hormonal balance, and we know it does so in humans, that that potentially could influence things like sex or gender identity and orientation. Have you thought about that as you've heard all the cultural trends that have happened in the past five, 10 years has crossed your mind? We know that it occurs in frogs. So we know that we can alter sex identity and who um, we have male frogs that tend to copulate with other males as females, even though they have testis and they're genetically males. Um, I think that the uh, human situation is so much more complex um, and, and again, including in, involving genetics and hormonal influences and environmental influences and social influences, that I think it will be more difficult to point to an individual compound and say, oh, this is the, the determining factor. But it could be a factor. There's no doubt in my mind that it could be a factor, correct? If you If you could wave a magic wand and have certain studies done or people be aware of something... Specific to the research that you've done, you know, I know you focus on frogs, but what is it you'd like people to know in the big picture about what the work that you know of? Uh, I, I think people need to have a view of the entire complexity. So in the case of that, so for example, I've oftentimes been thought of as, oh, he's against pesticides or he's against modern agriculture. And I'm not against all chemicals or all pesticide use in the, in the environment. Um, I, I don't think that would necessarily be a good idea, but, but I think you need to look at each individual factor and look at the negative and positive consequences together. So in the case of atrazine, for example, we know that it has environmental impacts, impacts on environmental health and public health and every vertebrate animal that's ever been studied, unless the industry is throwing the money at the study. I'm, I'm, I'm completely confident in science that atrazine has these effects than fish, amphibians, reptiles, birds, mammals, including humans. As an herbicide, atrazine only increases corn yield by 1.2%. It's primarily used on corn in the U.S. And we eat less than 2% of the corn that we grow. So when you look at a situation like that, when there's all this potential for harm, the EPA says 54% of all species and 42% of all critical habitats will be adversely affected by atrazine. When you look at how little we get out of atrazine in terms of feeding the world, then, I, then to me, that's a no-brainer. And I think that people should have access to all of that information together to make decisions about whether or not a compound should stay on the market. 
You specialize in atrazine, but it does make me wonder, are there hundreds of atrazines that do different things in it, our environment? Yeah, atrazine is the poster child because, one, we know what it does. We know it is not, it's not good. And it's everywhere. Almost any place that you're going to look for any kind of agrochemical, atrazine is going to be part of what you would find, even in areas where atrazine is not directly applied. So that's why it's important. On the other hand, there, you know, we have something like 80,000 human-made chemicals in the world. Most of them haven't been studied in the level of detail that atrazine has. If you go through the literature right now, you'd get glyphosate or Roundup, metolachlor, atrazine, maybe one or two other compounds. Most of the other compounds we use in agriculture, we know nothing about what they do. So, yeah, we're missing a lot of information. Of the chemicals that I've studied, though, atrazine is the one that keeps coming back. It's always there. We can always measure it in the environment. And it always has some effect under almost any kind of condition that you use it. Did someone from the EPA at one point in time approach you and say they understood, based on the science, how serious this was? I interacted quite a bit with people in the EPA, including Tom Steger um, and a statistician named Mary Frankenberry. And they spent time in my lab. Um, they spent a lot of time evaluating my data. And yes, on many occasions, they expressed concerned about, concerns about atrazine and its continued use, given what we know about its adverse effects on wildlife and now humans. And what would you also say to people who don't understand how science works today? Based on what you've learned in your experience, what should they know as they're reading studies and hearing about what studies and results are found? Well, that's hard. I think in, in terms of atrazine, what people should know, um, the same thing that I already expressed, they should know that it's not saving the world and feeding the world. That, that the 1.2, my understanding is the 1.2% increase in corn yield translates to about $100 million dollars. And I think they should understand that it's an economic decision, not a decision that's based on anybody feeding the world or developing new um, uh, cleaner fuels for that matter, right? Because the most of the corn that we grow is used to produce ethanol. But most of that ethanol is being produced by burning coal. So you're, so you're burning coal and oil to produce a cleaner fuel and then transporting that fuel in diesel trucks. And I think most people should understand what we are compromising and, and that wildlife, health of wildlife and environmental health and human health is not balanced by the benefits of atrazine other than the money that it, that it produces. When you're doing basic science and not expecting to be attacked for it, but this happens and you realize what you're up against and even your family perhaps being harassed or threatened and so on, your job, your career, what is it that keeps you on point? when I assume a lot of people wouldn't want to stick with it or wouldn't have the fortitude when they face that? One, so what keeps me on point one, I love the science and, and, and I would push forward to answer the important questions regardless. And two, I feel a sense of duty. I have a very strong sense of, or a need to give back. And, and for example, I grew up in South Carolina. I spent a lot of time in the swamp with frogs and lizards and snakes. And one of those swamps that I spent a lot of time in is now a national park. And we now know the news story came out a few years back that that national park, Congaree National Park, is contaminated with atrazine and ethyl estradiol. 
We also noted that park is surrounded by a low income black community. So the potential for me to give back literally to the swamp, to the environment that made me a scientist and to give back to where I came from. Um, that's also a drive for me. What does Syngenta, the maker of Atrazine, have to say about all of this? Well, they have said that they simply did what was within their power to set the record straight about their product, the product they defend as safe, and they say they did what they had to do to defend the product from inaccurate and unfair attacks. And they might point out that the EPA has not restricted the product. It's still in use, despite what many researchers have found, and they're right about that. Of course, critics of the EPA say this shouldn't be allowed, and there's all kinds of conflicts of interest in our federal agencies, but the finding of the EPA is definitely in Sagenta's and Atrazine's favor. Today, by the way, CDC's Division of Toxicology, if you look this up online, says Atrazine can alter the way the reproductive system works, this is a little bit chilling, that it may increase the risk of preterm delivery may be linked to some types of cancer, has been known to have caused liver, kidney, and heart damage in animals, and could cause these effects in humans. Also, says CDC, when pregnant women are exposed to atrazine in drinking water, it's, quote, associated with low fetal weight and heart, urinary and limb defects, and that high levels in pregnant animals caused, quote, reduced survival of fetuses. Again, all this according to CDC, while the EPA is saying that what's in our water and environment is safe enough. There are still many unknowns about this chemical because there certainly isn't a lot of profit into researching the bad things about it. There's not people funding that type of research. CDC notes that, quote, little information is available regarding the effects of atrazine in children. In 2012, Syngenta settled class action drinking water lawsuits agreeing to pay $105 million out but denying any wrongdoing. And the company continues to vehemently insist that atrazine does not cause any harm to people in normal real-world exposures. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and that if you did, you'll leave us a great review and share it with your friends. Check out my other podcast, The Cheryl Atkinson Podcast, and be sure to watch Full Measure every week on Sundays to find a TV station list of times near you. Go to CherylAxon.com and click the Full Measure tab. Or you can just go online on Sundays to fullmeasure.news and see the program as it feeds live about 9.31 a.m. Eastern Time. And it also is posted after it airs on television. It posts at fullmeasure.news starting around 11 or noon Eastern Time on Sundays with replays available all the time at fullmeasure.news. Also consider supporting independent journalism by visiting CherylAxon.com and clicking the store tab with some cool products for independent thinkers with slogans such as, I need to find some new conspiracy theories. All my old ones came true. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.